Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. The fragility of live stage is the most beautiful thing in the world. We all play pretend. It's different than in movies because the people up there are real and the people in the audience are real too and there is a back and forth give and take. It's not a wall. The fourth wall is not a wall. It's a group of people. It's a population. It's just this fragile, beautiful thing that you can mess up if you don't believe. That was Allison Pill. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. bit of housekeeping before we get into today's episode with Allison Pill. I just want to thank people who wrote in enthusiastically about the show's return. Uh, we have, I think, something like 40 more episodes to do in 2020. Seems like a lot. It is a lot. If you want to drop us a line, please feel free to do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. I love reading and responding I usually respond. I think I've responded to every email that we get on the show. If you'd like to donate, do remember that we are an independently operated podcast, at least for now. So feel free to do so on PayPal or Venmo at talkeasypod.com slash donate. Every donation, no matter the size, whether it's one time or recurring, really does help us continue doing this thing week after week. So, with that said, I'm excited to be doing this show in 2020. I'm excited for the next 40 episodes, and I'm very excited about today's episode with Allison Pill. I'm not going to give much of an intro here. She's incredible. You have seen her in many films and television shows. She has worked with so many wonderful filmmakers like Bong Joon-ho, Aaron Sorkin, the Coen brothers. Uh, You probably saw her in Vice, American Horror Story. She has a new show on Hulu from Ex Machina director Alex Garland. It's called Devs. She has also worked a fair bit in the theater. She was in Blackbird with Jeff Daniels in the mid-2000s. She was also recently in a play called Three Tall Women by Edward Albee. In it, she co-starred alongside Glenda Jackson and Laurie Metcalf. And their rendition of this Edward Albee play was as special and transfixing of a live theater performance that I've ever seen. And what I learned from that play, if 
I didn't know it already. I definitely knew it leaving the theater is that Allison really is as dynamic and versatile as they come. You need only to look at her performances in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and The Newsroom and then in a short film by Janixa Bravo called Woman in Deep. Line those three performances up and what you'll discover is the kind of range very few people possess. My hunch is that the best is yet to come for Allison. So, without further ado, here is the one and only Allison Pill. Allison Pill, how are you feeling? Okay. Do these things make you anxious? Uh, yeah. I mean, no. I don't know. Uh, What's the I honest mean, answer? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, part of it's exciting because you're like, <laughs> somebody's going to ask questions about my experience, which, you know, a lot of humans really want mm-hmm. because we're all pretty self-obsessed. So you're like, oh, somebody cares. But on the other level, on yours specifically, where you're like, oh, this is going to require self-exploration. So it's also a little anxiety producing. I see. Do you think actors are especially self-obsessed? Hmm. It's an interesting thing. I think we're more likely to be vain than self-obsessed, necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's a very easy career in which to become self-obsessed because you have people fawning all over you, truly. Mm-hmm. Like, there's somebody doing your hair and doing your makeup, and it's really easy to forget that that's their job. They're not there because they... Want to be. Yeah. Well, they, they may want to they be. They may want to be. They may love doing that work. Totally, but it's still their job. It's right. not like, you know... They're not your mom. It's not like they really love you. They didn't sign up for free. Yeah, yeah. So that's confusing. Mm-hmm. You know, something that struck me in the beginning. So you're born and raised in Toronto. You find that you want to act pretty young. I want to go to this moment when you're 12 with your mother. Um, you're shooting in Montreal. And you're staying at a hotel. And with you is a thing that's very important and as in uh, a blanket. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about why it matters so much, the blanket. And I think it's because when you're a kid, all you have are your things. They're everything to you because they're literally all you have. You don't really know about relationships. There's not like intangible things. It's just what's physically in front of you. And when you're done shooting, you go back home and you find that you do not have this blanket. Yeah. So my blankie had been with me since, you know, the word go in my life. I mean, it was a torn, ragged, vaguely yellow, mm-hmm. knotted, ripped monster of a blanket. It had been through some shit. It had been through some shit. It had been through 12 years of shit. And, um, and I had always been really aware of not leaving it in the bed because we're staying at a hotel somebody's like housekeeping is going to come in, they're going to change the sheets and nobody's going to notice my blankie. And that's exactly what happened one day. I had forgotten to put it on a chair separately. And we called like the laundry and tried to find it, but it was, it was gone. And it was at that moment, I was like, I'm an adult now. That's it. I'm a grown up. You remember that pretty vividly. Very much so. No, it was highly traumatic. It was also kind of a traumatic shoot otherwise. I was um, I was working a lot of illegal overtime for a kid. So I was working much too long, mm-hmm. like 12, 13-hour days. Um, that's illegal. <laughs> so that's, that's not... I was uh, putting the numbers together. <laughs> Didn't sound great. No. no. And so I was just really tired. They had a cot for me just off the set so that between takes I could run over. I had a, I got really sick and had a fever, so I would just like run between takes and just like lie down on this cot. Right. <laughs> and then just get back up and dance and, some more. <laughs> and they thought that was normal or okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, they knew it wasn't... Canada was kind of the Wild West in terms of a lot of kid production stuff. Like Road to Avonlea, Sarah Polly spoke very critically of mm-hmm. that experience for her um and a lot of there's just less oversight there's fewer productions and people didn't want to upset what few productions there were 
budgets were tighter if it was fully Canadian. So you just kind of did it. In thinking about that time, did you really know in that moment, oh, shit, maybe I'm not a kid anymore? Um, I knew that it was weird to still have a blankie, that at 12 it was weird. My brother's 21 and still has one. See, that's just wise. <laughs> Transitional objects are for transitioning. You can be transitioning for a really long time. Yeah. That's the way it goes. It may be a lifelong transition. It might be a lifelong transition. I would happily have been buried with my blankie, but I'm, I shall not be because now I'm a grown-up. <laughs> this could be like a, a one-woman play, you <laughs> acting this out. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be a, it would be a short one. I didn't say it'd be long. <laughs> I didn't like, say it should be uh, long. Yeah, yeah. It shouldn't be, and it would be short, but it could be. Compelling. It, something. The New York Times would call it riveting, transcendent. What are the other words they use to describe theater? It's always like a salient piece about our times. <laughs> is it it's every, true. Every, every, it's all of those things. I'm sure it would be. No, it not. It would be. It is. <laughs> now it is a thing, and I'm doing it on Broadway next year. Great. Just give me an EP credit. (laughs) Being a kid in a grown-up space, Mm -hmm. uh, you did this your entire teenage life. Mm -hmm. How did you do that? Uh, It struck me as pretty normal at the time. And when I moved out and moved to New York later and sort of over time met other beautiful, traumatized former child actors... Um, Is that how you guys introduce yourselves? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, hi. Yeah, we're all pretty messed up about it. You know, some people don't die early or maintain a career, which is like the success. But there were huge gaps in my knowledge for so long. Odd ones. Um, like what? There are a bunch of us who never got driver's licenses when we were supposed to um, because we've been driven everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have a crew driver come to pick us up for Can work. Can you drive now? I learned uh, about five years ago, five wow. or six years ago. Yeah. What did your mother think about you being a working actress at the age of 12, 13, 14? She was with me all the time. Right. So she was the one who was traveling with me. I mean, here's the thing. I credit them with being awesome parents. They were. And I was never, I never had to support my family, which creates really messy power dynamics that I've seen play out to a terrifying degree in other places, just because you shouldn't be kowtowing to your child because they're the main earner. Right. Like, you should be like, hey, jerk, stop that. And if you can't, because they are earning all the money in the family. It's it's a really messy power dynamic. Mm. But that wasn't my case. I think my mom thought that I was good. Um, good in what way? Good at acting. And I was really happy on set. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I didn't... Um, the one place where I had found that I fit in as a kid was the wonderful arts program that I went to in Toronto, um, called Claude Watson, but then they asked me to leave because I was missing school. For I heard acting. about that. It was, it was <laughs> Did, didn't they have some other description for you? I was a waste of space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That and one. That was the one. That was the one. I, I think out of kindness, I just didn't write that down. <laughs> on here. I thought, does she need that? <laughs> that's a line that's like swirling around in your head forever. Forever. Yeah. Forever. Especially for somebody exiting grade seven, like in the first year of middle school, mm-hmm. there was just one more year to finish and then the transition could be made to high school. But I was like, really? I have to go to regular high school? I mean, regular middle school for one year when everybody else has been there for another year before me? Like a new kid for the second year of mm-hmm. one like insane middle school that's only grade seven and eight because they just sort of shunted us crazy pubescent people to their own building. <laughs> I was like, mm, keep them all together, but keep them away from everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, which Separated. in some, yeah, like in some ways is wise because you're not quite big enough to be in a high school. Like physically, you're just like not <laughs> prepared for big people. Did you think at that age, were you confident about yourself and your abilities? Um, I've been pretty consistently 
confident in my acting abilities. There have been times when that's been misplaced and I've learned lessons. Like, not overly confident. You know, where I've been like, oh, I... When was that? There was a movie called Perfect Pie that I did. It was an adaptation uh, adaptation of a beautiful play. Me and Rachel McAdams, it was her, like, second feature out of school. And, and she was extraordinary. And I just was like, I... I was a little bit miscast, but I, anyway, I didn't make my hair dirty. Like, I didn't make bigger acting choices that I could have. I mean, I was, like, maybe 16 Mm -hmm. at the time. So, you know, I'm cutting myself slack on that one. Where, like, I could have, you know, that's also director, that's also producer of just... Anyone could have stepped in there. Yeah. But looking back, I was like, I wanted it so much, and I wanted it to be so good. And I'm speaking purely of my performance. I was like, it wasn't quite at the level that I wanted it to be. But it was a great learning experience in terms of taking control of some of the things that I could. And I'm still learning that lesson. But overall, no, it was the one area of my life, and it's why many other areas of my life felt minuscule in comparison, because I just didn't, I did not feel as confident. What do you mean by minuscule? I just didn't care about um, the most important thing in my life was always acting. Mm-hmm. Did you have that in there? I too? do. I do, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you for setting me up, Allison. I appreciate it. Uh, in 2013, you were asked if acting was the core of your life, and you said yes. Is that still true? Uh, no, because now I'm a mama. You weren't then. I wasn't then. Yeah. No. I was talking to my husband about this because I've gotten to be quite a sass pants at work. Not in a bad way, not in an actual sass pants way. In a, um, I think like, you brought some of it here. <laughs> but I'm totally here for it also. I expected as much because we had met once before. Yeah. I hope that you would bring all the sass. <laughs> yeah. The sass and the pants, they're, they kind of come with now. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be, I would be much quieter and more resentful. Um, we don't want that here. No, no. And people don't want it on set. And it's also, I mean, it's a few things. It's age, it's experience, it's my own actual power in a production now has shifted as I've gotten more things. Mm-hmm. And also the now discounted, but... Um, you know that that like stand like a gorilla pose before a meeting thing that's now totally discounted and but I was just thinking in my head like if you believe it people might believe you more mm-hmm. so I feel like I became more of a gorilla it could be a placebo gorilla sass thing. pants right. yeah oh fully yeah so that now because I have the belief that people will listen to me about notes on script about things that I feel about a scene or whatever else like that belief now travels with me in a way that it didn't used to mm-hmm. where now I'd be like I need dirty hair dirty this hair you know whatever <laughs> like um they would they would have to listen to me my husband was listening to me talk about the production on now and telling one of my wonderful co-actors to be like, yeah, we should have had more food. You should have brought that up. You don't like that line? Tell them. You got to tell them. Write an email. Just go for it. And, you know, he's like, who even are you? You didn't used to be this way. And it's a series of showrunners who have empowered me mm-hmm. to a great But you've degree. arrived at that place. Yes. It yeah. wasn't always the case. No. Because in 2004, you're in a movie called Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, which I think I watched as a kid. But yeah. You probably did. Everybody has. I, I swear did. it. It's honestly the thing that I'm still most right recognized for. for. I was the right age for it. Yeah. Um, you didn't have power in this production. No. There's a lot of things that you found, I'd say, wrong mm-hmm. about it in terms of the writing, the making of it. It was your first kind of big thing mm-hmm. on a big studio level. What do you remember now, 15, 16 years removed from it? I mean, I will say this. I've come to a place of peace with it. Your arms are crossed now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is my... I will loosen and and be more open to discussing this project. Because it was a real... It used to be a really defensive place for me to even talk about it. I was like, I'm not... I'm more than this. I'm more than this Disney movie. And now, like, 15... Yeah, 15 years on, I'm like... Cool, man. It's still alive. I didn't even know you were in it till this morning. So (laughs) so if if it helps, I don't know anything about that. Yes. It seems like it was a learning experience in retrospect and painful in the moment. It was clarifying. It really was. I had just graduated high school. 
I was figuring out whether I would try to go to university or not. And I only applied to one university, which was Oxford, um, partly because of the Golden Compass, honestly, partly because of Philip Pullman, truly. Did you get in? Uh, no. I interviewed there, but I did not get in, which, fair enough. Um I was at this moment of deciding whether I really wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, like starting to have a realization that child acting is really kind of crazy. And that you had been mistreated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think I was even at that one yet, honestly. Oh, that's later. <laughs> that's later. Um, Sorry, I think Sam, I was... <laughs> that's actually another trauma. And I didn't, in 2004, my notes say, I didn't arrive there yet. Thanks for incorrectly correcting me. <laughs> no, I mean, it was all true. I just don't think I realized it as such. At that point in time. Right. And the the amount of money that was spent on the production that I saw as wasteful, I was also being introduced to, I mean, one of my best friends in my life I met during that summer through the director's assistant, Henry, who the, he just introduced me to this crew of Toronto guys, all of whom were about 23. And I was like, oh, you know, it was like the Zoe Deschanel, like, one day you'll be cool. And that was also that summer at the same time, separate from the production, but because of the production, I was like, man, I might be able to talk to people. Like I might be catching up with my age mm-hmm. finally. Like I, I have, my peer group is now only slightly older than me. And that was a big transition. But then the the film itself was just kind of, I didn't feel like it had good messages for girls, and I felt really strongly about that. The script kept getting changed and changed, and that was really disappointing um, because of studio notes. Like, originally, we're trying to run away from home to see a concert in New York City. We're going from Jersey to New York City, and the whole thing is we're going to sneak out. Mm -hmm. But then halfway through production, they changed it so that we weren't sneaking out anymore, and we got permission. And I was just like, but you guys... That was the whole... Movie. That's the whole movie. Like, that's the whole thing. The entire conflict. <laughs> yeah. So now could. the movie is, hey, um, want to go to this concert? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah let's go to the concert. So it's about so. a five-minute film. <laughs> exactly. It's about as long as your As my one-woman play. play. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Did I one beat woman you to play? that? Yeah, no, just slightly. Just a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, we can edit that out. <laughs> I have editing rights, right? That's what we do. I oh. edit this up. Yeah, we're just going to give you the whole file. We're friends. Go ahead, Allison. You just take the whole thing. That's how this works. Yeah. Um, who cares about this movie? <laughs> Truly, I only brought it up because it seemed to be an important moment in your life. However painful it was at the time. However stupid it is in retrospect. What I liked about what you said is you're bringing up that scene in Almost Famous. It's kind of the best part of the movie in looking back at it. Hey, man, take good care from San Francisco. Man. One day, you'll be cool. Look under your bed. It'll set you free. I watched that movie a lot because I also, not as young as you, but started very early working around people that were older. Mm -hmm. That's when I thought I wanted to be like a film critic. I was like 15. It's great because it captures... A thing I think maybe we both had, which is there is a desperation to be taken seriously and to feel equal, mm-hmm. even though you're not exactly equal and you don't even have the intellectual bandwidth to be equal. Right. But you're asked to do the things that the people around you are doing. And it's very confusing. It's also very easy to get addicted to precocity. You're just like... Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm ahead of my time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm better than the people my age. And you just... I tried to block that word out (laughs) because it was said all the time. All the time. All the time. And it's troubling because you start believing it. Yeah. It just makes aging harder, um, which is already a kind of weird thing to do. I mean, we all do it, but it's... um, 
I'd say a woman in Hollywood, but a person anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's it's an existential threat, this aging thing. You will end. <laughs> so to make any of that harder seems uh, cruel. And this sort of petering out of the use of the word precocious, I was like, but, but I'm still precocious. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not precocious at all anymore. I'm just kind of... A 34-year-old lady, you know, like... You're a very precocious 34-year-old. <laughs> Thank you. You're ahead of your time. Hey, thanks. What did it do to your sense of self in your 20s? Did you realize, oh, that those things that happened to me, a kiss on set, yeah. the cot, all of that, it, you know, which was only a decade prior, mm-hmm. was that when you realized oh, this is maybe a little peculiar. That's when I started to realize it. And I was also in the midst of dating men in their mid to late 30s. And again, that you're just like, you're precocious, it's cool. And kind of by my late 20s, I was like, I started dating people my own age and kind of trying to figure that out and kind of more age appropriate. And that was a real transition because it was like, okay, I think you were still chasing precocious there or trying to figure out how to be around the grownups and that's not how you do it. Um, It was also a position I felt comfortable in and being the kind of, you know, you're like, you're the ingenue. This is what people want from you, you know, and this makes sense. And also in terms of first kiss being on set, like showmances became deeply confusing in a way that they're always confusing. I mean, to have any chemistry with somebody who's not your partner now it's just like, what? Mm-hmm. But you, but I've been through enough relationships and have enough history to go like, okay, that's what that is. Can you explain that term to me? Okay. So a showmance is when you fall deeply in love with someone who you're in a show with because you're playing romantic partners. Mm-hmm. And you get really confused as to what's real and what's not. And then you end up dating that person. What's reality and what's in character. Right. And um, and it can get very confusing, especially if you're 21, 22. <laughs> and uh, again, your first kiss was on set because no boy had ever kissed you when they weren't being paid to do it. So, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So... It was... I don't know why that makes me more uncomfortable. I know, you really... <laughs> but you, well, just finish your thing and I'll tell you why. Uh, that's a showmance. And they, it happens among many actors because your lines get blurry and you're kind of a fantasist anyway. Like anybody is, but you actually get to act on it in a way that people don't or get to live through these really romantic gestures that aren't your own. They're your characters, but you kind of get confused. Was it confusing for you in terms of how you felt about someone? Like, Did you ever think, do I actually care about this person? Or is it just the character that cares about this person? Um, well, you find out kind of swiftly after the production ends. If it has legs. But I also was such an extreme fantasist that I was like, it's got legs. No matter what, it's got legs. And they're like, well, I'm not sure, bud. You might be wrong about that. I'm like, no, I'm not. It's for real. So that was me in my 20s. How did that manifest in your 20s? (laughs) Dating older dudes I'd done plays with. (laughs) And insisting. And insisting this is real. And when did that change? Uh, I think around 25, 26. I think when I was 25, I started dating a 25-year-old. And then when I was 26, I got into a more serious relationship with somebody who was just a couple years older than me. And I was like, oh, yeah, we're idiots at the same level. Mm -hmm. This feels good. So that's what you want. You want idiocy at the same level. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you can't have that with, I mean, my husband now is 10 years older than me, Mm -hmm. um, but he's an idiot at the same level. Right. (laughs) I got to think on this. Okay. Um, You're in a play called Blackbird. This uh, feels adjacent to the showmance of it, but you have a quote here about being in that play Mm. uh, with Jeff Daniels. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, you said, when I was in Blackbird, I just didn't have the capacity to deal with anything. I didn't have support from the director, and I was feeling very lost. So my solution was to have four martinis a night. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not really interested in the martinis, although we can talk about the martinis. They it's, were good. There was a great bar across the street from the theater. Yeah, strong. They were excellent martinis. <laughs> fairly priced? Uh, no, they were extra. I mean, it was Midtown. Of course, they oh, were not no. fairly priced. Yeah, $17 a yeah, 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 great. I'm interested in the what you were willing to do and, and are still willing to do in terms of submerging yourself in a character for a role. Is that what happened here? Am I misreading that? No, that one, that was a real confusion for me. I was also at a very dark period in my life, generally speaking, but I didn't feel Your like, arms are crossed again. Yeah, yeah, That's I know. Okay. This one can be arms crossed. This might be arms crossed. I um, That play honestly almost destroyed me. I was really... What happened? I, uh, and it's funny because now we're... Now we're good, but I I had a really tough time working with Joe Mantello, who directed that production. We'd had a great working relationship, and there was one kind of blow-up that happened to be the week that critics were arriving. And he sort of tore me down, and and I'm not sure whether it was to get at my vulnerability, whether I was, you know, keeping something back. Um, That might have been his feeling. I'm not sure. But I basically spent the first three months of that production really not wanting to go on stage. I really didn't want to subject the audience to my bad acting and badness. And I knew that the play became a success. We got extended. People said it was really big and important stuff that was happening. All the adjectives we used before. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Salient exponential, Farsi. You know what one they really use? <laughs> elegiac. Oh, yeah. They love an elegiac. I don't think ours was elegiac. No. I don't think so. But I think they were like, this is deeply creepy. I just wasn't taking care of myself. I mean, halfway through the production, my stage manager, because I fell every night. Like, there's just a moment when I fall and the, um, the stage was carpeted. Um, wonderful stage design. Anyway, the stage is like kind of shitty office carpet. And I would fall every night on the same knee and it was fine, but I kept rubbing the same spot over and over. The carpet was not the cleanest, and I just never did anything about it because it was like, this is just happening. And um, and my stage manager finally looked at it. She was like, oh, my God, your knee is really infected. And it was like green pus was exiting my knee, and like I had to hydrogen peroxide it a lot. And she was like, you've really got to take care of this. I was like, oh, yeah. Okay, sure. Like, I hadn't even... Processed that. Processed, like, noticed it. I don't know. Like, it was at that level of not taking care. I was really... And it's a really dark play. Um, There was no housekeeping. No. None. And then at the time, they brought up wanting to take it to Broadway. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I'll... I might die. Like, I think I might. Um, That's the end of Allison. Yeah. And since then, Joe and I have um, repaired our relationship. You know, we worked together on Three Tall Women, and it was really um, good in many ways. But it was, um, I've never not want to go on stage. I'm always like, where's the stage? Get me Mm -hmm. to it. I love it. I don't have stage fright. What was it about that performance that you felt, oh, this is not fit for people to see? Uh, Well, Joe really, and we were late late enough in the process that hearing him say, the things that he was saying, which were like, I don't know what you're doing right now. like, And we just kept, went to word one of the play, and it wasn't just general notes anymore. It was just like, start again, start again, start again. And by the end, I was hyperventilating and um, and left. the. And then it was like, rehearsal's over. I was like, yeah, because I can't talk because I'm hyperventilating. <laughs> like, I just wow. don't. Um, and we were also doing five show weekends. So it was Friday to Saturday to Sunday, which for a two-hander of this level of, yeah, I should say the play is about pedophilia. The play is about a 27-year-old woman coming to visit the man who she had a relationship when she was 12. And it's very complicated and really dark and really, I mean, it's an incredible play by David Harrower, but it was dark material. How did you pull yourself out from that? Um, the wonderful director, Doug Hughes, came along. And at a very similar moment in the rehearsal process for a play called Mauritius, it was just we were about to leave the rehearsal room and about to move into the stage. And so it was a real moment of transition. And instead of, um, you know, I know what Joe is doing and I, I understand it now, but to myself then I didn't. Um, and with Doug, Doug just took me aside and pulled me into a different rehearsal room, sat me down 
and said, you know, I think you can go deeper. I think you're holding back in a very one-on-one respectful conversation. And I burst into tears and I was like, you're right. And his assistant actually got the photo of us. There's just like the two of us on opposite sides of a table and his assistant was standing in the hallway and he just took a snap randomly and it was just like, and I have that and I just think, oh, I'm so grateful to that man because it was that moment of like the respect to say, I don't need to break you down in order for you to find your breakdown. Um, I think you're very talented mm-hmm. and you can find your breakdown yourself, but I think you can, I think you also have it in you to take this breakdown further on this stage and not to your house. It's a lot. Yeah. It seems in looking at so much of what you've done, you are being directed by men. Yeah. Is that a conversation when looking back at your experiences and you're like, well, maybe some of the things that didn't work were gendered? I hesitate to say that it's gendered. Sometimes it has been, Mm -hmm. decidedly. Um, yeah, please correct me. This is just a no, 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 no. And and that's where I, I've worked with really just untalented women, <laughs> and I've worked with some untalented men. But the, I would say the untalented men that I've worked with, um, or the talented ones, have been more toxic than the females. But that's just probably because they're more prevalent, mm-hmm. um, and because they can they can get people to listen to them in a different way. <laughs> yeah. It's just like like beyond beyond the production, you know, it's just their their megaphone is bigger. Something I was struck by when when we saw three tall women, not only how compelling you were, but how locked in you seemed to be in that performance and I'm sure you were in other performances. I just only went to the one. And then I was reading and you have this approach towards audience that I am really fascinated by. I could quote you on it, but I would prefer you just talk about it because I'm just interested what your methodology is going in because it's, I could describe it as harsh, but that seems... Harsh? <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Uh, You're laughing as I was asking that question. No, so. no, no. I, I'm laughing because um, I don't like them. I don't think many of them are good. Mm-hmm. Um, You're talking about in theater. Yeah. Um, The butts and seats that make my job possible, I have a um, contentious relationship with. That's a better word. (laughs) I've also recently been doing some really helpful work with OCD stuff, um, misophonia as treated as OCD. So a lot of it is like people move, like sound things, movement things in the audience um, would send me into a crazy rage, which I'm now mm-hmm. doing some work on to try and facilitate my own improvement around. Is that noises. why you're not wearing headphones? Um, no, that's just because I hate the sound of my voice. Um, <laughs> no, that's an easier thing. Um, no, people are just. Ugh, theater is my church. I mean, besides my real church, it's my other church. <laughs> um, church too. It's my church too, and it's been my it's been my getaway. It's been my it's the place I respect the most. And so when people are disrespectful of the work, but of the sanctuary itself, I get really upset, like very angry. And then I will do the show at them that person or Mm -hmm. be like you don't deserve this show (laughs) like asshole who's like you got your feet out you came in fucking jeans you got some fucking pretzels go fuck yourself you're dead to me and i'm gonna do the show for you you cocksucker so you're doing a better job for them is that what it is yeah you're looking at them and you're like you're wearing jeans i'm gonna be great yeah i know it doesn't really make sense i didn't say that (laughs) um during reasons to be pretty we at the lucille lortel which is a much smaller theater um and because of the set we could kind of peek through these like um part of the set was like the plastic um you know when like a, a loading dock like the plastic kind of freezer flaps the like plastic freezer flaps that you walk through. It's kind of like a curtain of plastic okay, flaps. Okay, maybe. Anyway, we were obscured enough behind them that they couldn't see. So I would literally look out and be like, M4 is going to get it. <laughs> and by get it, I mean a good performance. Yeah, no, I... <laughs> because I'm angry at them. 
Why does that work for you? Mm, I mean, I suppose it's the same kind of thing as naked picturing, uh, just trying to make the audience vulnerable in a moment when you yourself are really vulnerable. And also when you are vulnerable and people are invulnerable, like they've not come in the right headspace. The fragility of live stage is the most beautiful thing in the world. We all play pretend. It's different than in movies because the people up there are real and the people in the audience are real too. And there is a there is a back and forth give and take. It's not a wall. The fourth wall is not a wall. It's a it's a it's a group of people. It's a population. And they can fuck up a show just as much as we can <laughs> if they're not in the right headspace. Mm-hmm. And so I mean I think Every stage actor will talk about a good audience or a bad audience. And it's energetic, too. And because it's just this fragile, beautiful thing that you can mess up if you don't believe. Mm. It's like Tinkerbell. you got to clap. I've never watched the video of Peter Pan, which I watched every day, the Mary Martin 1950s version. It's troubling, I mean, in many ways. Tiger Lily, it's got a lot of issues. But you have to clap for Tinkerbell so that she lives. And I've never, even alone as a kid in the room, did I let it go by. Like, I was like, you got clap. I mean, I understand it's a tape from, you know, 50 years ago (laughs) that we taped off the TV on our VHS player. (laughs) Like, I understand that, but you got to clap. And you think most audiences are not entering in the right headspace? I think a lot of the audience doesn't know how to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's not a question of if they don't know how to be vulnerable, Mm. but that they don't know that they ought to be vulnerable. Right. No, and they don't have the training. I mean, and, and it's just like, but that's why I find myself obligated to stare at them and try and make eye contact with them while I'm on stage to Mm -hmm. be like, I can see you eating. I can see you just as you can see me. I too can see you and your wrapper and your goddamn gum. (laughs) When I was doing the Miracle Worker, which is in the round, there would be people with their feet stretched out on the stage. So I would circle the edge of the stage trying to kick them. They really put their feet they on the stage? They would put their feet on the stage. I mean, it's I, this is what I'm talking about. Well, there's another problem with theater, which is that it's <laughs> 90, 95% white people yes. going. Yes, which is rich white people. Yeah, uh, which some folks are trying to fix, but it's easier said Jeremy than Jeremy O'Harris being one That's of them. exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the Peter Pan, and I was looking at all the things you've done. There are a handful of people that you've worked with that I think you've delivered great work in, mm-hmm. but they have a legacy that has been tarnished for various reasons. Mm-hmm. I'm curious with someone like what's been happening with Woody and what, yeah. where we're at, and it's a whole bunch of people. How do you think we talk about work that's Don't tethered to a tarnished legacy? I am as confused as the next person. Because I think we're all confused. Um, and I... I don't know. I mean, I've always liked T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. Problematic. We can go down the line. I mean, we can go down the line for everybody's problematic. I don't know how to separate the artist from the art. I don't think, um, and I don't get the same enjoyment from the art, which I think is probably good, mm-hmm. um, where you can look at it from a critical eye. I think the argument to be made for not writing off all of Woody Allen's work is how it would also erase so much of Mia Farrow's amazing work, of Diane Weiss's amazing work, of all these other people's Mm -hmm. amazing work. Um, I think that's the part that I can't reconcile. That's the really hard part. I I don't think anyone wants to throw those out. No, like I don't, I mean, but I think it's okay that they're not enjoyable anymore. I mean, I have bad feelings about um, I have complicated feelings and really, I talked about it a lot before and during and, and then post Ronan Farrow and Dylan's um, greater public exploration of it and, and specifically her public letter mm-hmm. was very affecting. Um, affecting to you. Did, affecting to me, yeah. And I think, yeah, I don't think we get to just flat out enjoy those guys anymore. Like, I can read The Wasteland and I can love it, but I can also be like, well, 
I've been reading um, Tightrope by um, Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wu Dunn. They wrote Half the Sky. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, the coolest journalist couple, Yeah, I think, around. I think so, yes. <laughs> I think they have that title pretty fairly. And they they talk about a politics of grace. It's not something as easy as a second chance, but it is saying, do people have room for improvement? Like, is it because I think the idea of canceling out without process and not, it's not due process. I mean, I, I understand. I don't know. It's so complicated mm-hmm. because I, I would like to have grace towards people if they show remorse. Yeah. Um, and then you get into this whole, like, is their remorse performative? Yes, right. Is is it sincere? And how right. does even one gauge and sincerity? Did you listen to that? Um, there's a couple of things that have really gotten me thinking in wonderful ways about this. Complicated ways, but wonderful. Um, and examining my own feelings about it and my own generation's feelings about it. Radiolab did a series of three about consent, mm-hmm. yes. um, which was excellent. And the second one is the woman who helps young men reapply to university after having been accused of sexual harassment or assault or or unwanted sexual advances or whatever. And her take on it was so amazing, and I found myself really leaning towards her and also being confused by the female journalist who's younger and her take on it and that there's this generational divide. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the same ways that I've had kind of fucked up power dynamics in relationships of my own and times that I'm like, well, sure, in this day and age I would have, yeah – uh, at the same time, I'm like, I do not want my agency removed from me at any point. And I see it as that. Yeah. And I see it as as somebody trying to take away my agency, many of them women. <laughs> and, and then that, and that's my generational feeling. And I know it's that's not what they see. And I, you know, I understand. I would love to get to a place where uh, you and I can talk about this even kind of comfortably here. Yes. Yes. Because we're both like tightening right yes. now. Yes. Yeah. And I know after we'll talk about this part. Yeah. And be wondering, did we say the right thing? Yes. And that that doesn't work. No. And if we're we even kind of know each other and yeah. we can't just because we know people are going to hear this. Yes. We have to be so selective. And I really hope when Donald Trump loses this year. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say when. Yeah, I, I mean, and sure. And we get past this. Mm-hmm. I really hope we can arrive at a, at a place and dialogue where there is conversation. And we really do hear from all sides and try to get some kind of uh, middle ground, some si- just some kind of empathy at all. Yeah. Because this is not going to work long term. And it's hard even bringing it up. I feel uncomfortable bringing it up. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with discomfort. That's like where great work lives all the time. Mm -hmm. But But discomfort with fear. Yes. It's the fear portion of the discomfort because all of these discussions would be uncomfortable. Yeah. We're talking about power, gender, sex, people's ideas of all of those things bumping up against your own, and also a real cultural shift. that's long overdue and wonderful, but is, I mean, shifting sands under a lot of feet. And I think it's the fear portion that it's just the fear of saying something not wrong, because of course I'm going to say something wrong, but something that will be taken to mean that Mm -hmm. I have ill will towards one or the other party. That's exactly it. (laughs) And I've said this before on the show. It's like the amount that people believe that other people are acting and speaking in bad faith is astonishing. Yeah. And I really hope that we can get rid of that. It's why I started going to church, honestly. Really? Yeah, 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 for real. I didn't know any of that. No. (laughs) I didn't didn't even know you went to church. I started going... When when you mentioned the whole church theater and then the other church, I thought... Yeah, no, I... um, Because... Uh, liberal secular humanism is taking a turn for the hateful <laughs> in a lot of ways, and I don't mean you know I'm uh, it's there's just there's just a lot of fear and tension bound up in it right now, and I was like you know what I'm gonna need a little break to think outside mm-hmm. of this 
And truly, like, the church I go to, our youth minister is like, on a good day, I'm agnostic. <laughs> so, like, we're not really, right. you know, we're not. Um, I like that. Yeah. I mean, we were all struggling with faith, and we all come at it from different, very different backgrounds, mm-hmm. very different places. But um, I unfortunately went to Catholic school for oh, uh, 13 so sorry. years. My so parents sorry. are not Catholic. It's a whole different kind of conversation about education. Yes. But I I did read something that I wanted to bring up before we leave. Back in 2013, Mm -hmm. you were asked about marriage. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons you were reluctant to getting married Mm -hmm. is because of some of the bylines in the church and in the Bible about divorce. Um, Now that you are married, Mm -hmm. you know, you said this thing that made me laugh because... What did I say? I think about my family. Um, You said... On the subject of getting married and, and having a whole wedding, you said, I don't know whether I can trust the world enough, just statistically. Statistically for people and then statistically for actors are like two different sets of figures. I would say there is a one in seven million chance for actors. And the one in seven million was Paul Newman and Joanna Woodward. And that's it. That's the only one. <laughs> and I say that. Knowing that you are married. I'm married. To an actor also. Mm -hmm. And a filmmaker, a director. Mm -hmm. So, where are we at here, Allison? We're still married. Well, I know that part. (laughs) Congratulations. Thanks. Making it to year, even just one. I think five. Five? I think we're coming up on five years That's better than most of what I've seen in my life. (laughs) Where are you at in terms of that kind of sentiment around partnership I think partnership is amazing I think what's his name that Alain de Botton the um, philosopher mm-hmm. guy he's like if you're happy 60% of the time you're in a good marriage so that's a lot of the time you're not happy but he's like if you aim for that you're in a good marriage like if it's not a lot that it'll outweigh the less happy times but it's enough that you're like if we were just talking kind of economically Mm -hmm. you're in a better situation than you would be otherwise 60 percent, 60 40 that's the that's the good marriage that's pretty good it's pretty good and i think i've been really aware of this in um I've just become aware of this as we've started to institute family movie nights and kind of introduce our kid to movies. And there's just a lot of unnecessary romance in children's movies. Like looking back, I'm like, why are we trying to sell this point that this fish lady who can't talk is actually falling in love with this guy who's too old for her? Like, no, this isn't this isn't gonna be helpful in your life, my no, friend. These ideas are embedded early on. And and I just and I'm so I'm really kind of determined to not introduce romance. Cause I just think it does a disservice to mm. us all. Because long-term partnership, maybe it's romantic. Listen, Joanne and Paul made it look romantic and they really, I mean, they really sold it. Maybe they were just like not that ha- I don't know. They seemed really happy. I'm going to go with they were happy. Let's because just go with that. Let's just go with it. <laughs> I mean, they, good actors. But I, I mean, I think long-term love is different. We don't see enough of it in media, I don't think. Like, we just don't see what that looks like in a real way enough. Mm. Because I think it's interesting. And I think in talking to people... Now, when we're trying to negotiate what partnership means and as these gender roles are upset and as these power dynamics are shifting, like, what is this institution to everybody right now? Mm-hmm. Like, what if it's not a faith-based institution, if it is a civil institution, what does it mean? Why do we do it? You know, and I think parsing that out and looking more like, hey, 60-40, success is important. And I think we should talk about that more because it's not, I mean... I love my husband. He's amazing. And we talk a lot about interesting, wonderful things. He's an incredible co-parent. And it's also weird to be married. (laughs) Weird how? (laughs) You're just like, oh, there's this person. There's just this other person. Always there. Always there. (laughs) Yeah. I'm interested in in how I'll fare in that. 
the whole always there. Always there. You're still there. You're still, you're just like, you're just another person who's part of my life there. Basically the same. We're basically here in the same space and the same person. Yes. And you start, and all those things are true where you start, it's not even finishing each other's sentences. It's having the same thought at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's really, you're like, wow, our minds have melded to a maybe frightening degree. Who can say? say? Who can say? And that's what I mean about us, like, trying to... Finish sentences? Yeah. <laughs> you set me up. Yeah. You talked about claiming autonomy in your work. Mm-hmm. And now, at 34, mm-hmm. having access to that vocabulary to say, oh, maybe my hair ought to be dirty. Yeah. You've also said in the past, on the subject of love, that... I'm a perfect example of somebody who will make it work no matter what. <laughs> well. Do you feel that way now? No, because I have a much better sense of self. I don't think I would make it work no matter what. That's a much better place to be. Yeah. Um, that's a really unhealthy way to describe yourself. <laughs> Holy cow. That was in 2013. Yeah, no, those were dark times, I guess. <laughs> You're asking me like I know? We just met. Do you have it in your sheets of paper? Was that a dark time for me? <laughs> Hold on. Was that traumatizing? I really, uh, oh man, I really have changed in the last six years. Significantly. I would say in the last six, most especially, mm-hmm. almost. And uh, I think being dependable and really trying to make something work is really a great idea and i think and not inherently a bad quality no no and i think we live in a very throwaway culture in a this is difficult or this thing can't be fixed let's just throw it and move on and move on um but we are literally drowning in garbage toxic emotional garbage and actual plastic garbage so we have to start figuring out a way to reduce reuse and recycle I'm glad we brought your love back to this. <laughs> Make it full circle. Um, before we leave, mm-hmm. I know Thornton Wilder is important to you. In our town, there is a, a back and forth I like that I wanted to bring up. Emily says, does anyone ever realize life while they live it? Every, every minute. The stage manager says, no. Saints and poets, maybe. They do some. Do you think you've realized (laughs) sorry that that one gets me every single time um why does it get you his oh if you want to talk about a politics of grace thornton wilder is the place to go man that crazy cat his love of the simple day-to-day things that actually that means something, like cooking breakfast means everything in the world. I saw that production at Barrow Street Theater of Our Town, and it was spectacular because the whole play is very much, we know we're in, you can see the rest of the audience, there's no lighting, everything is just school chairs on top of desks, and you know there might be an umbrella, but that's about it. So the town is really, it's very pared down, and there's absolutely nothing theatrical about any of it. And then in the last moment, when she's saying goodbye, the curtain at the back opens. And I still I can't. The curtain at the back opens. And there's an actual set that is a northeastern town of the time period. Her mom is in full period costume. She is actually cooking bacon and eggs on the stove. And you smell the bacon and you smell the eggs. And you're like, oh, my God, smells are amazing. Oh, my God, breakfast is amazing. Oh, my God, love is amazing. And so I think that's the most important thing to remember. I think this country would be in much better shape if we all read um, more Thornton Wilder, honestly. I think The Skin of Our Teeth, most especially, but just his novels. There's just be full of grace, be full of gratitude and just be like, oh, my God, this is crazy. We're flying through an ever-expanding universe full of incomprehensible science that's happening all around us. I mean, half of the stuff we feel is not even really there. We might be, we might be 
this is a real thing. We might actually be 2D hologram on a black hole, you know? Like, that's real. So just live it up. You said, as an actor, I obsess about the text. But it's really just those fleeting moments during your day when you have extreme sadness or extreme happiness for two seconds, and then the rest of the day is normal. But how do you capture that? How do you capture two seconds of utter joy or utter sadness, then cover it up again? It happens to people all the time. Exhibit A. <laughs> it was sadness and joy mixed. It was like both. It was both. So that's why I'm good. Life. <laughs> <laughs> do you think you've done that as an actor? Man, I hope so. I try to... It's about the two seconds thing. Because it takes an extra oomph to get to a point of sadness. It takes the brain a minute to get there. So to then cover it up before you've gotten there, you might not make it read on screen. But um, hopefully I'm getting there. I mean, man, do I love it. I love practicing it. And maybe one day I'll get two seconds of joy, sadness in one take, and I'll be really pleased. Well, from my perspective, (laughs) I think you have. Um, especially uh, in Three Tall Women, seeing that in person, I thought, yeah, that's the best thing I've seen in, you know, five years. So, um, And you're 13 years old, so that's like a big deal for yeah, you. Yeah, it was a huge deal. Thank you. Glad we can end with an insult. <laughs> Sadness, then a laugh. <laughs> Allison Pill, thank you very much. Thank you. show special thanks this week to allison pill her latest performance is in the upcoming hulu show called devs it's from ex machina director alex garland and it premieres on the platform thursday march 5th to learn more about allison you can visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com there you'll find a back catalog of episodes with a whole bunch of actors i think you may like including Laura Dern, Randall Park, Edward Norton, Jackie Weaver, Pam Greer, Britt Marling, Kenneth Branagh, and many, many more. If you haven't done so already, be sure to give us a review on iTunes. The show is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to help us out, The best thing you can really do for us is to share the show with a friend online, on social media, anyone that you think may like what we do here. It means the world to us, and it really is the best way for new listeners to find the show. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. And as always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team, that includes our executive producer, Janixa Bravo, music by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, design by Ian Jones, our editor is Andre Lin, our engineer is Tim Moore, and we tape out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina, and the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Sam Waterston. Until then, have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. 
Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home.